you've got your Bibles, take them and turn to me to the book of Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to do something dangerous over the next few weeks. Um, at this hour, around 11 o'clock, which to our bodies, my body is still like noon time because I'm still adjusting to being back an hour. I'm going to talk about food, all right? And I know that's dangerous in this kind of setting, but um, I don't know if you're aware, but food and feasting play a huge role in the story of Scripture. Throughout the Bible, there are discussions of food, of feasting, of eating that are interwoven into the story of the Bible. In fact, it shows up very early on in the Bible, not just with the fact that they're given food to eat, as God kind of declares that to them, that they can eat of anything out there, that He has made sustenance for them. But it shows up there in the last pages of the Bible. And so in the first pages, you've got Him creating food for them. In the last pages, and we'll talk about this in a minute, you have them celebrating the culmination of God's kingdom with food. In fact, if you trace the gospel story, food, feasting, is an element all the way through. As I mentioned, right there at the beginning, God creates it for man, for woman to eat. But then in Genesis chapter 3, it is part of, a portion of, man's first rebellion. Is eating fruit from a tree that was forbidden. Now, Following that, you see in Exodus chapter 23 where the Jewish feasts that are set up once they enter or get out of Egypt and enter into the wilderness where they will wait before they go to the promised land, God gives them a system of feast and meals to remind them of what He has done for them and to point forward to what He will do for them. Those feasts, those festivals, those holidays that center around certain meals are there to give rest and to give thanks and to celebrate. In our own kind of calendar, we are entering into that phase when we begin to think about Thanksgiving and Christmas that are coming much more quickly than many of us are expecting them to come. And as they come, generally in non-COVID years, we think about, and perhaps for your family in COVID years, you think about large-scale meals and celebration with family. Psalm 104, verses 10 through 15 says that we are to celebrate God's glorious provision of food for us. It's an interesting thing that the Old Testament talks so much about God providing food for us because in the ancient world... That was not typical of other religious systems. As one theologian says, man is the climax of creation in God's story. And instead of man providing the gods with food, God provides food for man. We serve a God who is in need of nothing. We are created beings that are in need, and yet God promises to provide. When you get to the New Testament and Jesus has come along, what does he use to foretell his death and then tell his disciples to do continually, even to this day, to remember his death? It's a meal, the Lord's Supper. They do it eating around a table. In Acts chapter 2, it seems like most of the earliest church meetings and services were held around the table as they ate together from all walks of life. 
And in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, it describes the ultimate banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. One of my favorite verses about that comes in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it says in there that we will all meet together in the sky. I've said this before, it's one of those verses I use often while doing a funeral at the graveside because Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the Bible, the message, takes that last part about the fact that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are still alive will meet up together with them, and then we will meet together and be together with the Lord in the air. The way Eugene Peterson says that is that there will be a great big family reunion in the sky. I just love that imagery, right? Gathered around with some mashed potatoes and mac and cheese and fried chicken. I don't know if that's at the marriage supper of the Lamb, but it's got to be at least that good, right? With the greatest family reunion that has ever existed because all of God's family from all times and all tribes and all nations will be together united in celebration of the victory of our God. One of the many things I love about Scripture is, as we trace that through, many of the most important moments in Scripture have something to do about the table, about food, about feasting, or at least the concepts that are there. One of the reasons I think that's important is because that's how most of us, if we're honest, think about our own lives. The number of important moments, the important discussions, important times that have happened around our own tables. As I mentioned, Thanksgiving or Christmas. Just one-on-one conversations at a restaurant over a meal or a discussion about what's going to happen. We often put food with our most important moments in life. And so birthday parties have food. We have our wedding celebrations that will have some sort of food element. Maybe not a full-scale meal, but there's food surrounding it. And when you look in Scripture, that's true of the people's lives that are there. And it's especially true in the book of Luke. In fact, we're going to spend the next four weeks, we're actually going to spend the next eight weeks, all the way through Christmas in the book of Luke, looking at the middle portion now, towards the end, and then back to the birth of Christ during the Christmas season. But in the book of Luke, there is so much feasting that someone said, you could eat your way through the book of Luke. There's so much food and meeting and banquets and discussions that happen there that it's one of those times when you can gather around. See, you didn't know it, but Luke was a Baptist. Potlucks and banquets, right? I don't know how we've survived since March without it, but we have. Praise be to God. In fact, many of you know this, right? The biggest criticism laid against Jesus, not only in the book of Luke, but in many of the other gospel descriptions, is that he was someone who ate with the wrong people. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. Now, why was that such a big deal? Why did it matter who he ate with? What was such a big deal about that? Well, for them, it was an issue of purity. You are who you associate with. And if you're eating with tax collectors and sinners, it must mean that you agree with tax collectors and sinners. And if you agree with tax collectors and sinners, it means that you share the the principles and the 
holiness of tax collectors and sinners. And for that group, for that era, they were like, that cannot be. Jesus can't be if he is a holy man, a prophet. We're going to see that in our story today. If he's truly a prophet, if he's truly who he claims to be, he can't be eating with those people. It was an issue of acceptance. That if you invited someone to your table or you sat at someone else's table, there was this understanding that there was an acceptance between the two of you. And they felt like in that day that if you were religious and you ate with tax collectors and sinners, it was as if the pure was touching the impure. And in that situation and everything else in life, when pure touches impure, the pure becomes impure. Used it many times. If I gave you a glass of pure water and said, there is a tiniest drop of poison in it. No matter how small the drop is, you're not going to drink it. Amen? Because it's become impure with that poison. And so they said, if Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, whatever else is happening, a little bit of them is rubbing off on him. There was another reason why it was such a big deal to them. Because... There was a status level assigned to who it is you ate with. Since we're going towards Thanksgiving, I think about this in terms of Thanksgiving. Because when I grew up and we went to Granny Larson's house, Granny Larson had a larger family than my mom's uh, granny, Nell, did. And so at Granny Nell's house, there were only four of us grandkids, and we had a prime table to eat at. A card table that was brought in from the carport every year just for us to eat on right the kids table you had the parents table and the kids table but it was adjacent and close enough that you felt close at granny larson's house we had more than that and i was often the youngest and so the status of who you were was determined by the table where you ate you had the parents table the nice table you had the kids table and then when you were the youngest kids the youngest grandkids you had the kids ironing board Anybody here ever eat on an ironing board? Nobody? Nobody? Good. I'll go to support group about that, all right? We didn't have room. It was Granny Larson. She didn't have a big house. You ate wherever you ate. At Mama Bush's house, my great-mother's house, you just ate on a bed if you could find it. You just, wherever. And so when you got invited to the big kids' table, your status had been raised, right? Well, in their culture, if you ate with people, you were saying that you were at least near status with them. And so for Jesus to eat with tax collectors and sinners meant that he was saying that there was some status equivalency with them. And so in Luke chapter 7, immediately after, by the way, verse 34, Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, you say. Look as he has a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In verse 36, it starts the story that shows Jesus eating at a much fancier, nicer, more respected place. Verse 36 says this. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And so this is the proper way to do this. They, they're there, they're set up, they invite Jesus to come. 
We knew from previously in Luke that the Pharisees had begun to have questions about Jesus. There had been some antagonistic kind of confrontations with each other. And they, my understanding is, from reading the Scripture, from studying it is, they think we're going to have him over, we're going to ask some questions, we're going to talk about some things, we're going to get to the bottom of who he is. Now, just so you know, the way this kind of worked is that there would have been a, an area that they would have eaten in that would have been visible to people that would have stood outside. That they ate often in open air environments. And there was a couple of reasons for that is, first of all, there was no heat and air going on, right? And so if you wanted to eat in a place, you didn't want to be sweaty hot, and so you had things kind of air kind of flowing through there. there there's also the reality that the way that people ate in that day is that the table would not have been high to the ground, that it would have been low to the ground. And so as they sat at the table, they would come and recline on their left arm and put their feet out behind and use their right hand to eat. Even that showed some discrepancy, what I just did. They didn't have utensils necessarily, right? We think of eating, we think forks and spoons, that's it. They're just eating. And they would have been in a place where they would have been gathered around, where people on the outside could kind of gather and talk with them, have a discussion with them. In fact, what often happened in these kind of settings is they would invite someone like Jesus over, a thinker, a philosopher, a teacher, uh, someone who was a rabbi that had started to get a following. They would eat together, and then they would have kind of a Q&A discussion time for anyone to participate in and hear that were there. And so we hear here, he's at a Pharisee's house, that's the keepers of the law, the people that were most responsible for saying we are the set-apart ones, that's what the name Pharisees means, the set-apart ones, we are the ones that are different, we're going to do everything we can to keep the law. And he enters there and he reclines. Verse 37. And a woman in town who was a sinner found out that Jesus reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. Now we know right away from this, the idea that she is a sinner means that she is probably a sinner in a notorious way, not just that the town knew about it, but that it was in a particular direction. Now the book of Luke never matches these two terms strictly, but the books of the Bible, the the gospel books do, and the grander narrative of the language of that day almost always puts the word sinner in a Jewish culture with the idea of someone who is sexually promiscuous. And so we don't know exactly what her sinning was, but what we know is that she was known as a sinner. The next part of the verse says, And she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. Now, that's kind of a strange scene to think about here. You have to imagine what's going on. There are a couple of questions that I have that are not answered in this text. The first question I have is, how did she get in there? Right? Now, if it was an open-air kind of place, she may have just run as fast as she could, heard he was there, went and got there. But what we know for sure is that as Jesus is reclining at the table, remember, he is laying on his left arm probably, he is there with his feet behind him, everyone's kind of gathered around. As that's happening, they come, this woman comes, and she begins to anoint his feet with this alabaster jar of perfume. I read lots of places about what that would have meant. 
Here's what I know for sure is that sort of thing in their culture was not something that was easy to come by at a cheap price. There are some estimations that a jar of perfume of alabaster, alabaster was pretty common back then, it's nothing really special about that, but the perfume inside, that a jar of perfume in alabaster could have cost somewhere up to a year's wages. And she comes, hearing that Jesus is there because of the reputation he has, because of what's happened. We don't know if she's had a previous encounter with him. We don't know any of that from this particular text. What we know is she runs in there, she begins to anoint his feet with that oil, put that oil on there, and then she doesn't have anything and she's crying because she is in the presence of Jesus so much that she is wiping his feet with her hair. Now there are a couple of things to know about that. First of all, you need to know that some of the things that are happening here would have in many respects been considered culturally inappropriate. Highly inappropriate. First of all, you get a glimpse of this when you're over in the New Testament, uh, farther in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, when they talk about order and worship and what should happen. And one of the things it says is that a woman should always keep her hair up in worship, covered. That's because in their society, a woman never let anyone see her with her hair down except for her husband. It was considered inappropriate to do otherwise. And so for this woman to enter this space with Jesus, now, we don't have any evidence that she's married, and there were some differences in rules and regulations and thoughts about that with women that weren't married, but it was still considered inappropriate. It would be like going into a place, uh, a, a dignified place, completely dressed inappropriately, if you're dressed at all. It would have been that scandalous to some people sitting there. With her hair down, she begins to kiss his feet, which would have also been considered inappropriate in that day, and anointing them and rubbing them with her hands and her hair. The people that were there, the, the men that were around that table, and let's not be anything other than what's truthful there, there's no other women at that table. It's all men gathered with this woman behind, would have had gasped at what is going on here. Now in case we think, well, is that really what happened? Look what happens the very next thing in Luke chapter 7, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him, by the way, we don't have his name yet, we'll get it in a minute, saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who was touching him. She's a sinner. Now, I know the Bible doesn't give us like, clues about how things are to be said, but you can feel the condemnation dripping from those words. If he were a prophet, he would. Prophets are supposed to know those kind of things. Prophets are supposed to act in accordance with. If he was truly a holy man, he would know. And whatever hope he had about Jesus being someone who could lead them into the next era of what God intended, in that moment for this man was destroyed. You sense the skepticism is gone and his mind is made up. Verse 40, Jesus said, I love this because, again, in verse 39, who did the Pharisee talk to? Who did he say that to? 
himself. Does that mean he said it to himself like under his breath or does that mean he said it like in his mind? Most interpreters take that as in his mind he thought. Now he may have shown some action on his face. Y'all have all seen the faces of judgment, right? The tisk-tisk of what is going on there. Mm. He thinks it in his mind and Jesus says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it. And then he gives this little depiction of a brief parable, a much briefer parable of one similar to what he would tell later, but it says, a creditor had two debtors, one owed him 500 denarii, or day's wages, or think about that, a year and a half of wages, and the other 50 days of wages. Now, you can take that and look at it and pretty simply say, that's a big difference, right? It's a ten times difference. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them. The word forgave there means to forget the debt and remember it no more. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one he gave forgave more. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. This is a basic parable. It's very straightforward. It's very easy. We understand it. What he says is, listen, here's the question I have for you. If you owed somebody five hundred days wages and you owe somebody else 50 days wages just think about yourself let's don't put two people into it would you be more happy that your 500 days wages had been forgiven or your 50 days wages would you rather have a hundred and fifty thousand dollars forgiven or ten well the answer is both amen but you're a little more grateful for the big one than the little one Because it's given you more hope. Let me just say real quickly what Jesus is not saying to Simon here. Jesus is not saying to Simon here that we have varying levels of our acceptance before God. He is not saying that sinfulness is graded. And that this woman is a much bigger sinner than you, Simon. What he's speaking of here, and I want you to hear this, is the awareness of the sin in our lives. That this woman, Jesus is going to say, who has come to me and has anointed my feet and is washing my feet with her hair, is much more aware of the sinfulness of her life than you are, Simon. And because of that, she's going to be more grateful for the forgiveness. If you don't think you need to be forgiven because you think you've got everything in line, then you're not going to care about the forgiveness I offer. But if you are a woman who realizes that you have no hope of forgiveness, you are going to be grateful. I just want to be clear because this is not a story of a good person and a bad person and how Jesus says, well, the bad person will love me more. This is a story of two sinful people who are in desperate need of the love and the grace and the mercy of God. It's just that one realizes and the other does not. So then in verses 44 through 50, Jesus then, I love this point, this moment, he turns to the woman. Now she's behind him. He's been having this conversation while she's been doing this behind him. It's probably a little awkward at this point that he and Simon are talking about her when she's behind him. But he turns towards the woman and speaks to Simon. Turns towards her and is talking to Simon and says, Do you see this woman? 
Now what he's about to go through here are some protocols that could happen if you were a part of eating at a banquet like Simon was throwing. Now, just so you know, there was a list of protocols in their day that were lengthy and stringent. Invitations had to be sent at the proper amount of time before by servants who were properly attired. You had to prep the proper foods for that time of year, for this situation, for the level of the guests that you're bringing in. You had to have the proper reception of guests. You had to have the proper appetizers. You had to seat each person in order of age and importance. You had to provide wash basins for people that might want to have their feet washed or their hands washed. You had to offer certain prayers at certain times of the meal based on what was coming after what. And you had to light incense candles as the meal was beginning because remember, we're talking about people lounging at a table with feet that have been walking on mucky roads. No matter how much water you put on them, they're going to stink and nobody wanted that around while they were eating. In all of those protocols, by the way, of the ones that were required, the ones that Jesus is going to mention in just a moment, were not required, but they were considered thoughtful. As I read through those list of requirements, it reminded me, the only thing I could kind of visualize to think about what the stringency of how that code went was something like, um, and I, you know, how, how true is this to history? I don't know, but I'll trust it because it's on PBS. Downton Abbey. Anybody watch Downton Abbey here? I hear some Downton Abbey fans. What do they call Downton Abbey fans? I don't know what. Downtoners? What was that? Sleepers? I don't think that's what they call them, Tim. All right. But if you've ever watched that show, they have formal ways that everyone has to be greeted and introduced and the way the meal is served, and it's a very formal thing. That's the way these Jewish banquets were. And there were certain things that you could do, but you weren't required to do. And that included the three things that Jesus mentioned. He said, I entered your house. You gave me no water, but she washed my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. And there's this scandalous declaration that happens. This woman who is a sinner, declared a sinner three times in this story, receives no judgment from Jesus. And Simon, who violated not one single part of the law in this encounter, receives a blistering denunciation from Jesus. And the point that he's making is that you are missing what God is intending to do because you are hung up in the formality of your religion and you aren't recognizing what is right before you. Jesus says, I tell you, in verse 47, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus looks at her. So he's been talking to Simon the whole time, looking at her. But now he says to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's a beautiful story of Jesus showing mercy and grace in this moment. 
And here's the question. This is the only question I want to ask of kind of application today, and we'll talk through the ramifications of it. Really, the only thing that I want to ask today is this. Who represents you at this table? Who represents you at the table that we're talking about in Luke chapter 7? And let me get something right out of the way first. It's not Jesus. Amen? I mean, a lot of times we like to read these stories and go, oh, I would love to be Jesus. I would love to be Jesus too, but I'm not. And sometimes we like to put ourselves and says, oh, I would be the one that would welcome her and receive that and, and shut down the religious statements of the Simon the Pharisee. But that's not who we are. That's not what Scripture intends for us to see. There is one Jesus and you are not him. Some of you in this room may very well be the woman. We see in this interaction with this woman that she understands what the community standards are. She understands she has fallen below those standards. We see that through her tears. We see that through her actions. One of the things I think is fascinating in this is the number of action words that it used about her and the inactivity of the other people in the scene. Just from her, it says that she learned where Jesus was. She brought the alabaster. She stood behind him. She wept. She washed his feet. She wiped him up with her hair. She kissed his feet and she anointed. She took action after action after action after action because she was desperate to have something like the mercy and grace that Jesus seemed to be offering. And one of the most beautiful things we find out about Jesus in this passage is His compassion, His mercy, His gentleness, His kindness. We get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. I'm in the process, I just started this, but I'm in the process of reading a book that is really, really good. I recommend it to anybody that would, is looking for something to read that comforts you in understanding how Jesus feels about you. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And it uses the phrase gentle and lowly because there's only one place in Scripture, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, where Jesus describes His own heart. In that He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And those two words, when taken apart, they have similar but a little different meaning. The word gentle means meek, humble. It's an understanding that Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. And that His most natural position is not a pointed finger but open arms. This woman experienced that. His most natural position is open arms to Him, not a pointed finger. And the word lowly there means destitute or literally on the ground. What it means is on our level, accessible, approachable. One of the most fascinating things about Scripture is that this woman was going into a house where she knew that she would be castigated, that she would be chastised for her actions and was not welcome at all. And yet, she was willing to go because she knew Jesus would allow her to come. Somehow, the most holy person in the history of the world also seems to be the most approachable person in the history of the world. 
Now let me just say this to you. This is a little preemptive. We're going to talk about some other people at the table in a moment. Let me just say this. If your version of following Jesus makes you less and less approachable to people that are in need of Jesus, then you're doing it wrong. If your version of it builds more walls and keeps more people out and has more people you can't associate with at all who are in need of Jesus, then we are missing the mark. And the Scripture says that Jesus is gentle and lowly. He is open to her. And so if you are that woman, if you are in a place where you are hurting, where you are worried, where you feel unworthy, where you feel cast aside, where you feel the judgment of others, where you feel like, Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're here, but it still feels uncomfortable to be here. And if people only knew, and if they found out who I was, and if they knew what was going on, if that's who you are, then know this. Jesus' most natural position is open arms instead of a pointed finger. And He is willing and ready to receive you. By the way, that description of His heart comes right in the middle of verses that you know pretty well. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, that says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now this is what's crazy about that. Those two things at the bottom, yoke and burden, neither one of those are the things in general that he says they are. A yoke was something that you put to control animals. And a yoke was not, by definition, easy. It made it harder. And a burden is, by definition, what? A burden. When you think of the word burden, like, that is my burden, do you think, that is my easy thing in life? No, you think that's what makes life hard. Now, listen, Jesus is not saying that life will be free of that. He's just saying that what I'm offering to you, if you follow me, is a yoke that is not a yoke and a burden that is not a burden. It will be freeing. And to this woman, He forgives her sins. He gives her peace. He says, go and live in the grace and the mercy and the peace and the forgiveness that I am offering you. And so if you are that woman today, whether everyone in this place knows it or not, whether no one knows it in your life, whether you're listening online and in your room and you're thinking, I hope nobody finds out who I am, understand this, Jesus knows who you are and His arms are open wide. Maybe you're the woman at the table. Or maybe you're Simon. Let me just say this real quickly. If you are Simon, you're probably not going to realize you're Simon. Because religion and being right has a way of clouding our vision and creating blind spots. His religious credentials and his holiness code had prevented him from seeing the work of God that was going on around him. It's cliche to talk about the fact that Christianity is not a religion, but it's a relationship, but it's true. It's not about how many rules you can follow or how many you break. It is about whether or not you have been saved by Jesus Christ, you have been accepted by Him, and you are living in the power that the Spirit provides, being changed on a daily basis into the person that God has called us to be. And our religion... Our following Christ should never lead us to discount or dismiss other people. As I said earlier, to build those walls. 
Now, if that's who you are, if you're Simon in this story, then the simple call is to repent. And here's the good news for you. Jesus, his normal posture is arms open wide, not fingers pointed. Now, with Simon in particular, he had to show some things, but I can guarantee you this. If Simon would have said, I see the error of my ways, I repent of that, Jesus would have received him warmly. Which leaves the last group. We're not Jesus. You may be the woman or you may be Simon. I would think the majority of us are probably the onlookers. Verse 49 says, those who are at the table with him began to say, who is this man? It's the most important question you can answer in your life. Who is Jesus? And the corollary to that, and who am I because of who he is? There's this tension in this passage for us as we grow and go through the New Testament. It increases. We're in the tension of the fact that we already are saved by Christ. We are already redeemed because of the blood of the cross and the resurrection from the grave. But we are not yet in our eternal home. We are not yet in a place where we are celebrating together the glory and the power and the majesty of our God collectively as one with no dissension. We are in this place where we are called by God, set apart by Him, in conflict with the culture that is not. And I don't mean that God wouldn't receive them. I mean that they have not yet awakened to the power and the glory of who He is. We are people that are living aware of the fact that we serve a God who loves us and cares for us and died for us in the midst of people who are spiritually clueless about that. And yet God calls us in the midst of that to be people who understand that and live it out. What I hope happened with these onlookers, what I hope, and I don't have any evidence of this, and I would hope that it would be true for us, that these people that looked at him and said, who is this man even forgive sins, would have begun to follow him and the way he taught and the way he lived, like people did a rabbi completely. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 tells us that God has placed us here as aliens. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles, that word actually is aliens and strangers, to abstain from sinful desire that wage. He says, listen, I have placed you on this earth. You are not at home yet. You are aliens. You are exiles. You are here as people that are not in your home world. You're going to be placed beside people at jobs and offices and neighborhoods and families that do not understand who God is. And you are my displays to the world about the way that I want people to understand who I am. We stand, as we talked about last week, as God's ambassadors, as though God is making His appeal through us. And it tells us in the second part, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. So among the people that are not believers, among those that need Christ, so that when they slander you, they will. They will see your good works and will glorify God on the day He visits. So here's the deal. A lot of times when we hear good works, we think... Our minds, because of how most of us were raised, think of good and bad deeds to do as far as a code of what is good and what is not, of sins and not sins, about things that we grow up saying, good Christians don't do this. That is not what's intended in this passage. This is more relational than it is task. 
What he's saying is, you ought to live with your arms open to people in this society who are in desperate need of love and acceptance, showing the love of God, so that when they observe that, they may try to say something about you, but they can't because of who you are and what you do. This isn't about what what substances you drink or eat, what words you say, although that's part of living for God, and I'm all about talking through that. This is particularly, how do you treat people, particularly people that are outside the faith, and how does it mirror what Christ wants us to do? Is our heart towards people gentle and lowly? You have been placed on this earth so they would see you and be drawn into the glory of God. That means as believers in a world that is angry, we serve as peacemakers. In a world that is filled with angst, we bring peace. In a world that is divided, we attempt unity. In a world that is depressed, we bring joy. In a world that is pessimistic, we are the optimist. In a world that is in despair, we have hope. And we treat people the way Jesus would at the table. There are a lot of people in our world today that are simply asking the question, is there room for me at the table? Is there a place for me? And what Jesus showed to this woman who (laughs) interrupted a fancy dinner in the kingdom of God, the answer is a resounding yes. And I'm afraid that too many of us as followers of Christ have failed to declare that to the people in our culture and our communities that need it. My prayer is that we would not be Simons, but that we would be onlookers who see what Christ did here and emulate it and grow more and more towards that. Let's pray together. So we enter into this time of kind of response as you're thinking about the word of the Lord that God has brought today. I would just ask who you are at the table. And if you're the woman this morning, if you feel like that's who you are, destitute, despairing, in difficulty, feeling like you're outcast or that people knew if they uncovered what was really going on, you couldn't stand before them. Understand that God loves you and cares for you and desires to restore you. Nothing that this woman did made it deserving of what Christ did for her. She took steps towards Him. She simply walked towards Him. She took some action to say, I'm willing to do whatever you ask, God. I'm willing to show you, regardless of what that means. And because of that, she found forgiveness and salvation. And if you're here today, if you're listening today, if you're watching you're watching this live or later. And you feel like you're separated from God. Let me just say that His arms are open. And he wants to receive you. Maybe you're here today and you say, I recognize some tendencies of Simon in my life. 
that I immediately make judgments on people, I immediately look at them and evaluate them based on my standards. Instead of asking the question of how can I serve and minister to them? And maybe today you just need to repent of that spirit and begin to walk towards a direction of mercy and grace. Finally, maybe you're just an onlooker and you're asking the question, what would it look like for me to live a life of glory for Christ? And today you realize that it's taking some active steps to show people the love of God in practical ways, but also in ways that enable them to see how much God cares for them. Heavenly Father, we pray that today, even as we think through our lives and we are reminded of who we are, that you would give us the wisdom to see ourselves clearly. Well, we may have parts of all of those people within us. It may not be cut and dry. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to see those areas of our lives that we need to run to you and say, Christ, I am falling on your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. I've hid this from you or I've been, I've felt mistreated or misguided or I know in my own sinfulness I've had issues and I'm bringing those to you. Lord, show us those areas of our lives where we have written people off and dismissed them instead of opening our arms and asking how we can serve Lord, help us to be people that are consistently growing in how we walk and talk and act as representatives of you here. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today that has never accepted you as their Savior, if there's somebody watching that's never done that, Lord, that you would make it clear to them that that's something they need to do. And, Lord, that they would be willing to say yes to you. Jesus' name I pray. Amen.